All right, we have been in Luke 12. Take your Bibles and look at Luke 12. We're um, discussing the man who fears God. And last time um, we, were, we were dealing with what Jesus says here in Luke 12 about um, how we are to not only fear God, but make sure by contrast that we're not wrapped up in the fear of man or fear of our physical safety, uh, fear for our physical safety in some way that causes us to compromise the truth. We talked about the fact that everything that is done in secret and in the dark, everything that goes on in our world uh, will be brought to light because our God is not only omniscient and um, infinite in his knowledge, but he is omnipresent, sees everything, records everything, marks everything down. There will be a day of reckoning for every thought, word, and deed before a holy God. That reality alone is staggering to ponder because being finite, we... There's just no way we grasp how it is that God has recorded and knows intimately through and through and infinitely every thought, word, and deed of every human being that has ever lived and will call every human being to account for those things. When Psalm 78 warns Israel to pass on the fear of God to the kids, I think that's that's part of how we have to think about this. We must ponder the deep things of God's infinite ways and his purposes and his omniscience and his omnipresence, his omnipotence. We ought to ponder those realities and pass them to the next generation. They, they, must, they must not do what would be normal for the flesh to do, and that is that over time you just... You become indifferent to these things if you're not thinking about them and pursuing them. And if they're not passed on from the father to the children and the children to their children, then uh, over generations it gets lost. That was why they were warned. In fact, for just a moment, it might be good to remind us in Psalm 78, just put your eyes on it for a moment what was said, and we've, we've gone to this passage before, but I think it might be important just to be reminded of the exact wording when Asaph is challenging the people of God. He says in verse 1, listen, O my people, to my instruction and incline your ears to the words of my mouth. By the way, when you ever see incline your ears to, incline your ears to, you see it in Proverbs as well. This was an ancient way of saying, move the, your heart, bend your heart in that direction. Make it your full consuming inclination to move your inner life in that direction. That was kind of the idea. Incline your ear wasn't merely, you know, listen up. It was more the idea, own this. Own it and let it alter your life from the inside out would have been kind of the way that that phrase is used. And then verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. You're going to think that these things are not clear because 
They're unfamiliar, but I'm going to tell you them because they ought to be passed down. These things we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. So the idea here is that this is stuff that has been passed down, we're obligated to pass it down, and we're now responsible for the fact that it was passed to us. And so then we will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. <clears throat> For he established a testimony in Jacob. This goes all the way back to the patriarchs. That's the point there. And appointed a law in Israel. This is settled law, settled standard of God's character for God's people, which he commanded our fathers, so now it is to be passed down, that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children and what is the content of it, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget his works, but keep his commandments. Not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. It's, it's preparation, it's thoughtfulness, it's passing it on carefully and meticulously. If you go down further into verse 21, therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath and a fire was kindled against Jacob and anger also mounted against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. The fear of the Lord was gone. Just in a generation or two, this was the danger. So, Back to the study of the fear of the Lord and the fact that God knows all things. I think if we think about being dads and, and husbands and young men who are aspiring to marriage and family, young men who have disciples and who are being discipled and this information is being passed, to understand what Jesus says here about God is crucial and it's uh, so easy to forget or have it become dulled generationally. I remember just saying so often to our kids, you're not going to be as passionate about the truth as your father unless you think about these things. And you know, kids sometimes, if you're telling them that early on, they're like, I'm passionate about it, I, I love what you love. And, but what I was trying to assure them of was the temptation for sub subsequent generations to lose the, the passion and fervor of these things. And so last week we were talking about what Jesus says here in Luke 12 about the reality that hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees is rooted in their forgetting that God is the judge and all things that have happened will be revealed on that day. And we looked at that last time. So then you remember in verse four, Jesus said, 
I say to you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more they can do. You remember in the Q&A time last week, we talked about the fact that that's all they can do. But I will warn you, verse 5, whom to fear. And notice the basis of the fear here. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Fear him. That right there is important because you understand that the fear of judgment from a holy God drives your fear of God. Remember I told you that the, you know, sometimes these movements that, um, that speak half the counsel of God about what motivates the Christian to fear God, it's not helpful. Oh, we only ought to obey God because we love him. Well, we are to obey the Lord because we love him. We're also to obey him because we're his slaves and obligated to him. The scriptures tell us that, right? Luke 17, 10. When you've done everything I've commanded, Jesus said, then consider yourself still an unworthy slave who only does what he ought to have done. The ought language of the New Testament, these are obligation words. We ought to obey him. It's not just that we love Christ. We obey because we are his slaves. We're not only obligated to God by nature, that is to say, as God's creature, you are obligated to the creator who made you. That's how every pagan will be held accountable. When they meet their creator, it's not... They're not going to say, well, I didn't believe in you. Why am I being held accountable to what you say? I didn't believe in you. That would be a nonsensical thing for a creature to say since the creature doesn't have any breath without the creator. So even by nature, we are obligated to God. If you want a great chapter on that, Ernest Kevon's book, The Grace of Law, has probably one of the most profound and sobering sections on how every human being is obligated to God by nature. So the idea that there are these, you know, sort of autonomous, independent ways that we live. No, no creature is hidden from his sight. No creature is autonomous. But even beyond that, we are motivated, Jesus says, by the, motivated to fear God and not man, by the reality that after he has killed, <laughs> that is to say in God's sovereign plan after your life is over, and even if, as he's saying to the disciples here, someone kills you because they hate your God, right? The martyrdom is always this looming idea behind some of what Jesus is saying. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after have no more that they can do. I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Yeah, I mean, last time we were talking at the end of our time about the worst that humanity can do. That's... All they can do is rise up in hatred and 
choose to end another human being's life by force, that's it. They can't go beyond the grave. They can't touch you beyond the grave. They can't uh, reach beyond the grave and mess, mess with your eternity or what's beyond the grave. They can't touch any of it. You cannot do your worst against others in this life and affect anything beyond the grave. You can harm a temporal life. They, they could harm our temporal life, and that is it. And so, by implication, whatever someone controls, however they dominate others, in whatever way they might scheme against people or work against them in the here and now, that's all they're ever able to do. That's it. Jesus teaches here that the, the greater reality, which by comparison makes our physical death absolutely of no consequence, the greater reality is what drives or motivates us to understand whom to fear. That's the basis. So when someone says we're only obeying the Lord out of love, I'm like, no, no, it's, it's everything. It's everything the whole counsel of God says. And we should teach that to our children as well, not just give them grace, but give them the law of God, the character of God, the nature of God, and the nature of our obligation in eternity. I think far too often passing on the truth to your children is, is hearts and flowers in our culture. And we should be passing on a fear of eternal punishment. We should. Preaching on hell. <laughs> it's so, you know, it's a caricature of it, right? The fire and brimstone terminology comes out all the time. Ah, that guy's a... You know, I don't want to go to there. It's just fire and brimstone. And What do they mean by that? Well, it's probably a variety of things, but mostly it's a caricature of somebody in a pulpit that seems like they're just yelling at people and pointing their finger <clears throat> and mentioning hell and punishment over and over and over again. That's the caricature. But it's interesting. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ who preached on eternal punishment, I think it might be the third um, at the list of what he spoke on most in the New Testament Gospels. It might be number three as some scholars mark it down. So here is the Lord of glory himself and he is preaching on being cast into hell. I mean, that is, that is profound for us as Christians. Here's what our doctrinal statement says. We teach the bodily resurrection of all men. <clears throat> the saved are resurrected to eternal life and then appropriate passages. And the unsaved to judgment an everlasting punishment, again, appropriate passages. We teach that the souls of the unsaved at death are kept under punishment 
until the second resurrection. By the way, if you're ever wondering how to study with your children, just take the doctrinal statement of our church out and say, this is what we teach at our fellowship, at our church. This is what you must know. And just walk them through it. All the passages are there. You don't really need anything more than that. Just get a Bible out and, and um, talk with your kids about these truths. We teach that the souls of the unsaved at death are kept under punishment until the second resurrection, as Luke 16 and Revelation 20 say. And when the soul and the resurrection body are united, John 5, in the resurrection, then they shall appear at the great white throne judgment, as Revelation 20 says, and shall be cast into hell the lake of fire, cut off from the life of God forever. Then the doctrinal statement extends the, the principles taught in Scripture in this way. We teach the, that following the release of Satan after the thousand-year reign of Christ, that is to say after the earthly intermediate kingdom, Satan, according to Revelation 20, will deceive the nations of the earth and gather them to battle against the saints and the beloved city, at which time Satan and his army will be devoured by fire from heaven. And following this, Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, whereupon Christ, who is the judge of all men, will resurrect and judge the great and small at the great white throne judgment. And so we teach that this resurrection of the unsaved dead to judgment will be a physical resurrection whereupon receiving their judgment, they will be committed to an eternal conscious punishment in the lake of fire and then the appropriate passages. So we are wanting to teach the whole counsel of God as our Lord did whenever he was instructing the disciples and preaching to the masses. He did not avoid the subject of fearing God because he, he will bring about a reckoning, an accountability. In the Old Testament, um, you know, just think about eternal punishment for a moment. Some pastors, some theologians have said, and I think rightly so, that when you study the doctrine of eternal punishment, it's too difficult at times for us to stay in the study without backing up from it and just being completely undone because the idea of being forever cut off, forever cut off from God and consciously punished without end, this is, it's just too great, too overwhelming. It's like sometimes in the Old Testament when the writer would say it's just, these things are too big for me. They're too huge, too deep, too profound. They're eternal. I don't know eternity. I don't live in that realm. And it's true. But it was presented that way from the very beginning. Sheol 
in the Old Testament, as you sometimes read it in your English translations. That, that was the primary term for life after death. So what's beyond the threshold is Sheol, variously translated grave, and sometimes pit, and on occasion, hell. Uh, some of your common translations that were used for a long time, like the NIV, just translated it grave uh, in its typical uh, way. In many Old Testament passages, it would sometimes, um, the context would say that it's the place for a dead body. So sometimes Sheol is speaking of the grave or what's beyond the grave generally. Sometimes it's the place for a dead body. There are other contexts where Sheol is used. It clearly means more than just grave, like Deuteronomy 32:22. For a fire has been kindled by my wrath, one that burns to the realm of the death below. And there's Sheol. It, it is, um, if you pull it toward the New Testament, it's most closely associated with the term Hades, which you see in your English translations of the New Testament. It's sort of the New Testament counterpart. And so it would be referring to the place or the abode of departed spirits where God rejectors are presently in misery awaiting final judgment. So they're being punished now, they're in misery, but they're awaiting the final time. People sometimes in theology refer to their place right now as the intermediate uh, place of the dead or place of misery. Uh, Job speaks of it in Job 14. Those in the grave don't know what's taking place on earth. Job 21, it's a falsehood to believe that the wicked will escape God's just wrath by eternal punishment. Yeah, you have these places in Scripture that say, don't deny it. It is there. Uh, you, you know, it is a place of misery. It is a place, a holding punishment until the final punishment. Isaiah 66, 24 is, is straightforward. They will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their work will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. So there's this idea that beyond the grave, don't imagine that that's it, and it's just sort of a peaceful, sort of lying there dormant until whatever it is, misery and punishment, loathsomeness, and it awaits the final uh, resurrection unto ultimate judgment. When we come to the New Testament, the doctrine of eternal punishment is, you know, just narrowed down. It just gets more and more specific in the progress of Revelation. And you may not have thought about it, but Jesus defined the doctrine of eternal punishment more clearly, as I said, and on more occasions than any other New Testament author. So it was on the Lord's heart and mind in his ministry. And you have sort of a progression in the way that it's talked about. As I said, Hades, that's most closely associated with Sheol, so sometimes grave, hell, or the depths. Then there's this other middle sort of term uh, used only in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, 
and it was what the Greeks referred to as the abode of the wicked dead. So they're suffering punishment because they are wicked, but it's the abode of the wicked dead, and they're thrust in there, <clears throat> uh, sort of like an, a, an abyss of punishment. And then there's the final place, which in the New Testament language is what we would know as Gehenna. By the way, Gehenna is always translated hell in the New Testament. And it's the term Jesus used when he revealed the doctrine of eternal punishment to the disciples. And so every New Testament use of Gehenna, with the exception of uh, uh, James chapter 3, verse 6, those descriptions all came from Jesus himself. So he was using imagery in and around Jerusalem, the Valley of Hinnom, uh, the place where smoke was constantly coming up out of the valley. If you go to Jerusalem, you, it's just a, these uh, little valleys with all of these seven sort of hilly areas, and the homes are peppered along the hillsides, and their people are down in the valleys, and I suppose in ancient times it was probably no different. Of course, no concrete and those kinds of things, but it was just a, a mass of people in these valleys, and, and uh, one of them was the Valley of Hinnom, and that's where all the, the incineration of all the waste was. They, they went down there for all their trash, and so there was a constant, or, or so history tells us, a constant smoke coming up from there. And so... It was this imagery that Jesus would use in describing it, and Gehenna was the word for it. <clears throat> and so that continual smoke rising was how the Jews viewed eternal punishment. Uh, it was defiling. You didn't, you didn't want to live there. You, you were to avoid it and stay away from it the perpetual flame of it, it was their graphic view of eternal punishment. So no wonder Jesus used the term a lot. And so this is important then as Jesus here in Luke 12 says, I want you to think about that. If you're going to think about what it means to fear God, you cannot leave this out. Jesus had referred to outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, he says that in Matthew 8 and Matthew 22. And then, of course, in the Olivet Discourse where he's talking about judgment, the final judgment in Matthew 25. Outer darkness. Hell is a place of unending darkness and unending fire. It's very profound creation for judgment, unending darkness, unending fire, and unending agony of heart, mind, and soul, weeping and gnashing of teeth, sort of this unrelenting pain of being burned and inner, your inner life aware piercingly of your distance from God, cut off from God, guilty for your own rebellion. You had your opportunities. You did nothing with them. Look at Mark 9 for a moment. 
And this is important because when you study the doctrine of hell, you, as I said, you get struck by the forever nature of it. In Mark 9, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. <clears throat> it is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. That is a flame that never can be quenched. The language doesn't have the character of being figurative. Some kind of excruciating and repulsive flesh eater that eternally causes agony. I, I don't know what that is. There's some sort of way that that is being described as a literal torment that is unrelenting. Back to Luke 12. Back to Luke 12, you have later in this chapter, talking about the slave, verse 42, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them the rations at their proper time. Blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming, and he begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he doesn't know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes but the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but a few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much, of him they'll ask all the more. He's just indicating here degrees of agony based upon how much a person knew of God's will and spurned it. That is very interesting. An eternal punishment is spoken of as certain since sin in the world is here. It entered the world. It's as certain as we breathe. And so this is why Jude in verses 14 and 15 says, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and all of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So you just have this sense now that hell is certain, it is eternal, it is a, a terrible experience of unfathomable proportions. Second Thessalonians 1.8, they take vengeance on them that know not God and that obeyed not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In flaming fire, they take vengeance. There, there's the imagery again. Angels who didn't keep their first estate, but tried some satanic attempt to 
to uh, do away with mercy and grace by thoroughly demon-possessing every human being on the earth, or so it seems those angels that we studied in 1 Peter uh, have come to that, that place of being held for judgment. It says in Jude, again, verse 6 and 7, the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation, he's reserved in everlasting chains under darkness until the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, they are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So this is fire, it is brimstone, Revelation 14.10, burned with fire, Revelation 18.8, burning with brimstone, Revelation 19.20, and the devil who's deceived the culture, the global culture at the time, Revelation 20.10, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, the beast and false prophet are already there, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Forever and ever. And the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the sorcerers and the immoral and the idolaters and all liars will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, Revelation 21.8, which is the second death. That is to say the final death there's a resurrection for believers. We don't die the second death, but the second death in utter judgment forever is where all unbelievers will go because they're going to be where punishment was reserved for the devil and his angels and, of course, all who followed their rebellion. In John chapter 5, Jesus said the same thing. Don't don't be surprised, don't marvel at this. The hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. They will come forth. They that have done the good, they'll come forth unto the resurrection of life. And they that have done evil, they'll come forth unto the resurrection of damnation. Now, it's interesting that because it's such an offensive doctrine, it's not been easily passed to the next generation. And so I think that's maybe the, the best way to diagnose why the church hasn't feared God the way that it should. Um, yes, there are the, as we said last time, the childish, superficial, fear-mongering of humans trying to coerce and manipulate another human to make some profession of faith. You've all seen it, you know. Even, even today, evangelistic ministries that focus on children. I remember years ago, an evangelistic organization was, um, and, and you know, these people, I, I believe so many of them mean well and they love the Lord and they really are trying to bring the gospel as early as possible. Who wouldn't do that, right? Deuteronomy 6 says, teach your children to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, right from the time that they're coming up in your home. So. Who wouldn't want to give the gospel to children? But a lot of the evangelistic efforts in our country became a manipulative technique. And so these organizations, some of them focus on children. One of the organizations told me one time, well, all 
It was like 85% or more of true conversions happened before the age of 15. That was their go-to statistic. You know, that just, that sounded very American to me. First of all, Barna, if you read any of the statistics of Barna, you have to be careful because Barna's description of salvation and who believes and his description of faith, those organizations that do these surveys to find out where people are, the, the premise is false, or sometimes the definition of a Christian or born again is false, not biblical, and so then they gather their statistics. Some of that gets passed down into evangelistic ministries, and people just pick that stuff up. Oh, 85% of all true conversions happen before you're 15. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, who did you survey? We're, we're just North America. What about the globe? What about the history of redemption? You wouldn't have any idea about that. You wouldn't have any idea. It certainly wasn't the case in Jerusalem when the church began. 3,000 Jews, adult Jews, got saved to their own harm because they were now completely without a, a place and a people and a nation because the leaders of Israel had hardened their hearts. These Jews were now believers. So there are these statistics that get passed down. And so these ministries would focus on children and it, it turns into this manipulative thing. Who wants to uh, be in heaven with Jesus? Okay, who wants to avoid hell? And little kids would raise their hands. They'd, they'd say, we just had 30 kids make a decision for Christ. <clears throat> and I remember years ago in, in some of the families we were discipling, even in, in the ministry here, they were banking on it. They were so thankful that the Sunday school teacher had asked the question and the kids had raised their hands and they're now in the Lord, you know, four-year-old, they're in the Lord. And I cautioned some of those families, eh, you know, you, you're just not going to find a record of prepubescent conversions in the scriptures. We, we see children following their parents. We see children expressing love for the Lord. We see awakenings and things like that all through church history. But you don't see um, anything in the scripture. You can't find it. It's just not there. Don't, don't pick Cornelius' family in Acts chapter 10 because it says that every member of his household believed. It must have been an adult conversion. They must have been old enough which would have been somewhere around 12 or whenever puberty happens. There was no sense in which all these little children came and were converted. Can God convert a child? Sure, uh, he can. We just don't have a massive testimony in Scripture of the record of it. What we have is that children are shrouded in a kind of merciful ignorance in their early years, and though corrupt and sinful, they're hemmed in by the parents and the truth, and they're taught the law of God so that as their, their understanding starts to grow and they come to grips with the fact that they can't obey God, they need a Savior, then the, the law is a tutor that leads them to their need for a savior, and then they've got to repent. And we've, we've talked about those things before. We have no age of accountability in scripture. Everyone's accountable all the time, 100%. Um, 
we say age of accountability because we're trying to discover when, when their profession is genuine. Why am I saying all this? Because I think evangelistic ministries that in some, in some superficial way focused on hell, they weren't really passing on the doctrine of hell. They were just passing on some earthly concept of these things rather than teaching the younger generations a very clear, robust biblical understanding of judgment from all these places in Scripture where it is clearly outlined. Why? Because Jesus says it motivates you to have a proper fear of God, which, by the way, any human being must come to if they're going to be saved. There's no way to actually be converted without the knowledge of God coming to your heart and mind through faith and repentance. And the beginning of that knowledge is the fear of the Lord. So embedded in conversion is the, the proper fear of God. I'm unworthy. I am condemnable. To whom? To God. I am a subject of condemnation without Christ. I need a savior. That's basic to the gospel. And what we've sometimes reduced it to in these evangelistic ministries is a manipulative technique. And you remember that's, that's as old as the mid-19th century in this country as, a, as an actual manipulation going all the way back to Charles Finney. Um, some of you grew up in the invitation system, you know, where an invitation was given. And, get, and of course, God has used a proper proclamation of the gospel and calling people to be saved. He's done that. But Finney's invitational system and calling people to get up and move toward the preacher or the pulpit in some sort of public display of your true desire to want Christ, all that was uh, Finney's manipulative, manipulative technique uh, as a very skilled attorney at law and a, a remarkable ability to convince people logically that they must. He, he was a powerful orator in that sense and people came in droves and uh, he could put them under such fear and conviction by the way that he worked his arguments at them. And so then he made it uh, in so many ways, an affirmation of the power of his ministry he used to chide his contemporaries who didn't get that kind of response, uh, saying, you, you're obviously not getting the response I'm getting, so I'm clearly seeing the work of God done more than you. But he would manipulate people, and then he would say, you're, you're, you're going to be there under the conviction of God and the anxiousness of it. They called it really the anxious bench. People were holding on. They didn't want to come. And he said, if you're going to be converted, you have to come. You, you don't get converted sitting there. You, you have to come. You have to get up and come. So he created that whole thing. And uh, it came down through denominations, particularly uh, some of the Baptist denominations, as, as what you do in a service, what you do in the end of a service. We had a dear brother who grew up in that. In fact, he came to Christ, uh, a, a dear senior saint in our church came to Christ at a Billy Graham crusade. And um, he genuinely converted, loved the Lord, and uh, passionate about the truth. And when I met him, he was already in his 90s. 
uh, here at the church and, and sat on the front row and wept every single sermon. He just could not get over that he was redeemed. And, and I, I learned a lot from just his passion for the word. But he, he used to say to me, Pastor, why don't you do an invitation? <laughs> I said, well, I do. What, what do you mean, you know? He said, no, you got to call people forward. And uh, I said, for what? Like, you know, I'm, I'm admonishing them and exhorting them to believe Christ right there, right then. Yeah, but I mean, are they? Are they really wanting it, you know? And I would say, what do you mean? Well, you know. If somebody is willing to stand up publicly and come forward, now we know. And so I remember saying to him one time, brother, um, how do you really, if we're told to believe, confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. If you're saying that can't happen until someone in a church service publicly gets up and comes forward, what, how would you know? He said, well, it is the public. Are we supposed to have a public confession? I said, that's baptism. Baptism is your public confession, not going forward in a service. And then he, he had to admit, yeah, I guess people could get saved right there in the, while they're sitting there. He has to admit that. You don't get saved by some physical ritual of getting up and going forward. That doesn't save you. What saves you is repentance and faith. Um, and you know, he, even though he couldn't argue it, argue it, it's what happened to him. And so it was precious to him. And, and, uh, we had lovely times and when he went home to be with the Lord, he's just one of the happiest, most fulfilled, humbled believers I ever met. And he impacted my life greatly. The first five years I was here in ministry before he went home, uh, to be with Christ. And, um, at the same time, it illustrated for me sometimes what happens, you know, we had a family that wanted me to baptize their four-year-old because they professed Christ in one of the classes. And these, these kinds of things went on. I believe that one of the fundamental reasons that the church kind of descended into these manipulative ways is because we didn't actually pass on the real doctrine of hell through the families, through the dads, through the men of the church to the next generation. And therefore, we lost the true fear of God. There's no need to manipulate when you proclaim truth, and this is a truth that is in Scripture. In fact, I think the, the everlasting nature of eternal punishment is the most compelling aspect. It is forever. Eternal, everlasting, Forever, forever and ever. These are terms in scripture that express this duration, which is endless. One commentator said, it's unreasonable to assume that there is an eternal heaven, but not an eternal hell. Eternal punishment is as much a truth of God's word as is the re eternal rewards for the righteous. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 46, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The life of the righteous is everlasting, but so is the punishment of the wicked everlasting, end quote. That's right. If salvation is eternal, Hebrews 5, 9, 
then punishment is eternal and everlasting. Matthew 18.8. Then I often thought, well, you don't have to sort of quibble about whether it's eternal if you know that God's holiness is eternal. If his holiness is eternal and someone dies outside of Christ, then the eternal holy character of God must punish what does not match his holiness in eternity. It must punish it for all eternity. Otherwise, we'd be suggesting God's holiness ceases to exist. So you only got one of two options. Either hell is eternal because God's holiness is eternal, or in eternity, God chooses again to redeem those that have gone to hell and been there for a while. That those would be your only two options. There have been different views of hell. This is, you know, beyond our study here, but some of you may have grown up Catholic, the purgatorial view where the wicked can be cleansed by some, some level of burning off the, the consequences of your sin or the guilt. <clears throat> the, the main problem with that is obviously it's not taught anywhere in the canon of Scripture. It gets introduced as an idea, by the way, in the Catholic Bible, the Jerusalem Bible. It gets introduced in some of the apocryphal books, most notably Maccabees or Second Maccabees. So the purgatorial view is not spoken anywhere in the canon of Scripture. It is appointed to men once to die, then comes judgment, Hebrews 9.27. And there's no idea that judgment changes someone's status after a while. Some people have thought, well, the severe language of hell is just metaphorical, not literal. Well, again, as I said, the texts indicate the clear use uh, of the eternal dynamics of it, just like eternal rewards. And there's, there's never any indication in those passages about hell that there's something that, that makes us interpret it as metaphor. Those who hold that view typically don't say heaven is metaphorical or not forever. So it seems rather, you know, selective and special pleading to say, well, heaven's got to be forever. And it's not a metaphorical. It's a real heaven. It's a real place with real rewards forever. But hell isn't. Um, in the same passages, you can't switch without some indication that something is a metaphor. That's basic to, to Bible interpretation. And then, of course, some... Some studied hell for a long time who were godly Christian pastors and leaders and they, they just couldn't deal with the eternal nature of punishment. So they just came up with the idea of annihilation. You just get, you go out of existence or, or you know, it's not really eternal torment forever. Uh, you, you just sort of go out of existence. Part of that is because sometimes translated, translators translated words like eternal destruction. Um, and so they would highlight the word destruction and, you know, Jesus says in Luke 12, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Um, Matthew's gospel makes the term even a little more uh, translatable as destroy. And so the idea is, well, that's destruction. How can destruction be ongoing? It's destroyed. It's gone. And so that's where a lot of the annihilation view came from, plus the offensiveness of an eternal punishment. It just, 
didn't seem to fit in some of their minds the character and nature of a saving God, a saving creator, to go on for eternity still punishing uh, and tormenting creatures that have rebelled against him. In some ways, it's offensive because in our finite minds, we don't understand the holiness of God yet as we shall when we're perfected in holiness. Then there will be no question, but until then, it does seem like the punishment doesn't fit the crime. That's only because we don't understand sin and rebellion as we ought. This is why, men, it's so important to pass this truth on to your next generation so that they understand the fear of God is also motivated by right understanding of eternal punishment. It must be passed on. And as we finish our, our, just our look at this, it's amazing to me that Jesus goes right from the discussion about fearing him and not fearing humans and what they can do to you. He goes right from what God does to punish evil forever to how he highly prizes his people. Six, verse six, are not five sparrows sold for two cents, yet not one of them is forgotten before God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear you're more valuable than many sparrows. That is amazing. So he goes right from fear the one who could eternally punish to if you're in God and you fear him, you have nothing that can touch you because of how he highly prizes his people. And we'll, we'll discuss that one next time. It's just amazing the way the Lord courses through this discussion. It's just everything that's hidden will be brought up. Don't fear those who can do only to your body what they can do. Fear him who beyond that threshold can send all of that into eternal punishment. And by the way, if you fear God, you're, you're highly valued and prized. Everything that's happening to you, not only does he know it and has ordained it for his glory and your good, but it is doing nothing ultimately to what really matters in your life. You're more valuable. He knows how to value you. He knows how to highly prize you. He knows how to take care of you. Teach that to your children as well. Fear God. Go toward God. You want the protection and the security and the eternal uh, stability and established nature of knowing and fearing God. That's why it's the beginning of wisdom. That's what you want as you grow in these things. You should tell your kids. So, all right, let's cut it off there. We got a microphone back there? Okay. Are you going to throw it at us, Rob? Or Can I ask the first question? Well, sure. That's you, uh, power right there. That's He's, right. He could just turn everybody else off. And... Um, you brought up Finney and his uh, highly emotional evangelistic methodology. Yeah. Uh, and the anxious bench and all those things. Uh, I, I feel like that's my main mission field, or what I call the lost in the pews, where I grew up. Pretty much everybody experienced that. Yep. Many of them are not genuine believers. It would be very helpful to hear how you would sit down with someone who comes from that background. They tell you their testimony, and it 
it doesn't line up. It's not a Christian testimony. They did uh, behavior modification, basically. Where do you take them? What do you do when, that's, when you're faced with a person like that? Uh, the first thing I want to do is find out what they actually are understanding about it. Because sometimes, like my friend uh, who was confused about a public profession, I think in the invitational system there's a lot of confusion about why someone's required to get up and go. And I, I want to know, if that's where they are, then I'm going to acknowledge, yes, I do understand that it would it would um, seem to require courage and therefore we interpret someone's courage to get up and go into a public service up to the front. We interpret that as genuine desire. We, we immediately label it um, that God is moving, God is doing something in their life because they got up and they went down. That was Billy Graham's whole deal and of course that goes all the way back to Finney. So I'd want to know, if, if that's what they're thinking about the public confession, then I can take them to passages and show them, actually, there's, there's nowhere in any scripture that talks about a corporate worship service where people have to do that to be saved. The confession is as near as in your mouth, Romans 10. And you believe in your heart, right there, wherever you are. And, and when you get there and say, so you're telling me no one can be saved outside of an invitation, then no one's been saved in prison, no one's been reading their Bible, no one, you know, no one alone, any of that. And usually that starts to make them want, yeah, that's true, you know, I guess they can. So you're acknowledging, yes, I understand how we interpret a public getting up and going forward. I want to know, is that what you're confused about, is the public nature of it? Secondly, and it might be helpful for you to know that Ian Murray has put together a little, uh, it's just a, I don't know what to call it. It's a booklet. It's a small little leaflet compared to his normal writings called The Invitation System. Or the title is, Lance, what's the, the Invitation System? So you can still order that from Banner Truth. And it is an excellent little treatment of the history of this and its problems. And so sometimes I just hand that to them and say, read this and let's talk about it. Or I might go through it with them. I don't want to get into too much of the history of Finney except to say, like I said here, that sometimes people need to know the roots of the practice um, because they think that this is biblical, it's in the Bible. And I know they can be on the defensive if you come right out of the gate and say, show me that in scripture, show me where the invitational systems in scripture. Sometimes people, they don't know, the, most of the time people in those churches don't know their Bibles anyway. And so they're going to be on the defensive. And I don't want to be an unnecessary um, uh, prov provocation of their defensiveness. So I do want to ask a lot of questions, find out what they think and why. And then I, I will give them a little history. Are you aware of that? And then I'll, I'll talk about the history. If I can give them a leaflet like that, and uh, eh, leaflets too, it's, it's a little tiny booklet. If I can give him a tool like that and we can work through it. Um, and Ian Murray's a historian. You can tell him he's not pushing any particular, uh, uh, this isn't his doctrinal statement on the invitation. He's an historian from a Christian perspective looking at the biblical data and the history of Finney's practice. And so that can often be helpful. Uh, if somebody won't read that, because sometimes these folks don't really want to get into any of that, 
um, I think patience and prayer and asking them questions. So, so how do people get saved who don't come forward? Like, are you saying that only people who went to a crusade or were part of an invitation at the end of a service and came forward, only those people are getting saved? How do people get saved outside of that? Uh, and, and can we really then make this ritual of getting up and going forward um, a necessary part of salvation? I mean, we have to be careful of that, right? We can't make some practice that you do. That was really the thing that toppled my dear friend's um, strongest arguments is he, he would never say that anything's added to faith and re repentance. It, there was no work involved in being saved. You come to Christ by faith, it's all what Christ has done. And he knew that and believed that. So when I suggested that we might be adding something to the gospel, well, he started to consider it now very seriously and say, well, it's true. I, I like people coming forward. I, I was saved by the gospel having gone forward in a crusade, uh, but I wouldn't say going forward was what saved me. And so, so then we were able to sort of work our way that direction, if, that, if that's helpful. There are some, by the way, you won't, you won't get any traction. They practice it, particularly pastors in those churches. The first church I, my wife and I went to as Christians officially uh, was um, an invitation every service, an evangelistic message. Sooner or later, whatever passage they were mangling got to the invitation and the gospel because pastors in those denominations, independent Baptist denominations, but it was, it was across the board, to them, people coming forward was affirmation for their usefulness to God. It was all very self-centered. That's why they sang four, 40 verses of Just As I Am, because no one is coming forward, so we gotta sing it again to give the Spirit time for what? If they're honest, which they aren't, it's to affirm them. Look, I preached this great sermon, why aren't you coming forward? And that's why after a while, people in those churches, they just got so tired of it that somebody went up to stop it by rededicating their life. Just to stop the stuff. And I'm just here to rededicate my life. I, you know, I'm going to surrender again. And hey, our brother here has surrendered. You know, and I don't know if you've ever done this, but I did this at an independent Bible Baptist church one time, when every head was bowed and every eye was supposed to be closed. I'm I'm confessing right now. I opened my eyes, and the guy said several times, "I see that hand." There was no hand. So there. There are some who got into the habit of making this stuff up because it's a manipulative tactic. <laughs> Lance, I, was, I wasn't going to out you like that, but I just, you know. <laughs> I mean, they just started making this stuff up. I see that hand. I see that. And there's no hand. They're just making it up because they want so badly for God to affirm what they're doing. Um, but yeah, God's not at work in that manipulation at all. So anyway, good question right down here. Thanks, brother. Um, I was just thinking, because you just said uh, rededication. That happened a lot in the church that I grew up in. Um, when talking to someone who's like, yeah, I just rededicated my life to Christ. And it's like, well, how do you, how do you rededicate your life to Christ? Did you dedicate your life to Christ when you first got saved? Like, 
So how do you, what's like the most loving way to talk to them in that and not just be like, no, you're wrong? Well, you do, you do have to remember that it's best not to jump to any conclusion how they got to their view before you know how they got there. So you have a lot of work to do. I mean, that's the privilege of it. If they say, I just rededicated my life, ask them questions, really. Tell me about that. And as they talk about it, you start to hear little things that you can ask a second or a third question about. Well, that's interesting. So you're not saying you weren't saved. Well, no, no, I wasn't saved, but I was backslidden. What do you mean backslidden? What does that mean? Well, I wasn't, wasn't walking with the Lord. I mean, you like at all, what were you doing that made you say you're backslidden? What you're doing is getting them to define what they really mean. And two things happen in that. One, you, you don't jump to conclusions. You're getting informed so that you can sort of direct them to Bible passages. The second thing that happens is they start to, to hear themselves and their view. And you know, we do this all the time in Christian conversation. We make huge jumps and leaps without understanding. This is not a good practice to apply the Bible to everything that we think, that needs to be the habit of our life. And I don't mean conversation needs to be stilted and we always have to have a Bible open and you always have to say, oh, interesting question, turn over to this passage. It wouldn't necessarily be bad if that's genuine, but I'm not talking about getting into some ritualistic practice. Oh, the guy gave me an answer, but he never opened his Bible. No, but did he give you verses? So then he, he opened his Bible. The, you know, There was a whole piece of Christian history where they didn't have a printed Bible in their hand. They just had to know the scriptures and there was one chain to the pulpit down at the local chapel and that's where they went to learn the Bible. So there's no requirement in scripture that you have a copy of scripture right with you right there all the time, though that isn't a bad thing in our day and age. My point is that we talk so generally about things sometimes that over time we're not giving the passages and part of that is because we're not understanding what the person's problem is or where they've gone astray. And we're doing this with them. We're not answering their actual issue. So I love the fact that when you ask more questions, those two things happen. You begin to find out just what kind of texts you need to bring to bear. And then secondly, they stop thinking generally and start thinking more specifically, oh yeah, yeah, I can't say rededication because that's unclear or no, you're making a good point. If, you, if I say I was backslidden, but what does that mean? Am I, did I lose myself? I don't believe you lose your salvation. So you're starting to help them be more precise in their thinking that you might even see their whole system topple because now you've had a conversation with them for 30 minutes and now they go home and they're like, hmm, never thought about that. That's interesting. Then next week's conversation is, hey, by the way, I, 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 I wanted to ask you another question about what you said. You said that, you know, backsliding, you asked me what it was, and I told you, and you asked me if I thought I'd lost my salvation. I don't believe you can lose your salvation, but I don't know where that's taught in Scripture. And suddenly you're off to the races, and they're having a new understanding grow, and right? So instead of just thinking, you know what they're saying to me right now is wrong, I got I to gotta tell them that. Be patient. Be very, very patient um, because you learn a lot about how people arrived 
at the way that they think. And that's crucial for discipleship and helping them apply the, the right scriptures to the right issue. So, yeah, important. Be, be patient. <laughs> Resist the temptation to be like, I got to deal with everything I just heard. I just heard 30 minutes of nonsense. I got to deal with it. Yeah, but they're in the Lord's hands, and the 30 minutes of nonsense was ordained by God. So take it one little slow moment at a time. <laughs> Be patient. God's at work. So, yeah, good, good question. Others? Right back here. Got your job cut out for you, brother. <laughs> um, I was wondering, how would you, uh, what advice would you give when talking to someone who comes from more of a, like a holiness movement background, very works-based, and then maybe saw a lot of very clear hypocrisy, particularly from um, a family member who was a pastor, who was preaching one thing, who was just completely a pagan before his family. And there's a lot of confusion whenever clear truth, such as the doctrine of hell, is brought up, because that brings a lot of uh, baggage with that. How would you encourage you know, me for talking to someone like that? Well, I would, if, if um, I knew I was going to have ongoing conversations with someone from the holiness movement and the holiness movement by that he means the you know history of Methodism uh, branched off into these um, holiness movements within Methodism Methodism by the way you know John Wesley Charles Wesley the early Methodists they were called Methodists because they were meticulous about practicing scripture it was nothing disingenuous ultimately about the fathers of Methodism they were just Method, Methodists was a pejorative term at first. They didn't coin it themselves. They got called that by those that uh, that Wesley and the Wesley brothers thought were too casual. You know, especially Whitfield and the Calvinists. You know, they, the Wesley brothers thought that they were, you know, you guys were easy believists, right? You just believe and you don't have to do anything. And so the Methodists were much more. Uh, in their minds, trying to work out in a strict method the way their Christian faith lives itself out. Now, granted, Charles and John Wesley both believed that you could lose your salvation. So, um, although I'll tell you, when you read them, they got very confused on that at times because they loved the sovereignty of God, believed in the sovereignty of God, and sometimes they sound like thoroughgoing believers in the sovereign work of God. Uh, and at other times, the idea that you had to maintain this grace that you hold on to, um, that was very clear as well in, in those early Methodist theological uh, foundations. But <clears throat> when you're dealing with people from that camp, I, I often um, go at the issue of eternal security first because it seems to me that holiness movement is um, most concerned about something they've been taught about losing your salvation. So you're not gonna you're not gonna do anything with their doctrine of sanctification right away. You're just not because they're gonna be Methodists and they're gonna be strict. In fact, if you want to really sit down and know the history of how that works itself out, just talk to our beloved Don Dunlap. I mean, he grew up in that entire system and. And, and he even was taught that Calvinism was easy believism. Well, to Calvinists, easy believism isn't Calvinism. To Calvinists, easy believism is a shallow gospel. 
So even that, when we first talked about easy believism, I kept saying that the pragmatic movement was all about easy believism. And, and Don was saying, no, 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 easy believism is the Calvinists. <laughs> even though he was already well migrated into Calvinism and the sovereignty of God, he was still saying, you know, we had to define terms. But I do believe with holiness movement people, it's going to come down to eternal security first. Because if you can get at the issue of not in their minds, once saved, always saves, and that's easy believism, it's going to affect your life, not at all. You can tell them you have a pursuit of holiness just like they do, and yet you believe you never lose your salvation. So how is that possible? How is it possible that you can believe in the sovereign holding of God onto your salvation, the doctrine of preservation, and still have a robust doctrine of perseverance. Because the Wesley brothers loved the doctrine of perseverance. What they were weak on is their doctrine of preservation. Whitfield argued uh, with his contemporaries, the Wetleys, Wesleys, and it was, it was basically that. I have a doctrine of perseverance as robust as yours, but I believe it is rooted in the preservation of God. So therein lies some of the confusion. So if you go at the doctrine of eternal security first and try to find out where they are on that, you'll probably then find some inroads because you want to you identify with their pursuit of sanctification, of course. But the reason so many of them became hypocrites is because they're not believers. They're, <clears throat> they literally have believed in not just holding on to your faith by their meticulous methods, but actually coming to faith by those meticulous methods. But you can't really know whether they're in Christ or not until you get at the issue of eternal security. I do the same with Pentecostals, oneness Pentecostals, because they don't believe in eternal security either, and that's why they're always hammering on morality, 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 even though they're mystics when it comes to revelation. <clears throat> I don't bother with talking to them about their doctrine of revelation because they're not going to buy anything on that till I deal with morality in their life because that's, that's what they're most concerned about. So why do they get so careful about morality and, and rail on it? Because they don't, they don't believe God saves securely and you could lose it by the way you live. So I want to show them I have just as much a concern about personal holiness as they do, but it's rooted in God's doctrine of perseverance preservation. I did a message called the uh, when, when <clears throat> when assurance is elusive, you can find it online. And I, I basically describe how the warning passages of the book of Hebrews teach us both that God does preserve and eternally secure us, but the means by which he does it is our perseverance in the commands. That's the means he chose to bring about our security and our perseverance. If you get at that doctrine, I think you'll open up some new discussions with the holiness Wesleyan Holiness Movement people. And we have them right here, Hope Sound. I mean, we have a whole Hope Sound Bible College is a Wesleyan Holiness. It was interesting, my son Aaron got offered a football scholarship to um, uh, a Wesleyan Methodist school in Illinois, full scholarship, but he and I both agreed there's no way he's gonna survive there. Uh, because it was a clamped down, very strict Holiness Wesleyan movement he probably could have survived at Pensacola Christian College before he could survive at the Wesleyan Methodist School. Um, 
because he would have seen all that stuff all around him, and then you know he would he was too young to think it through theologically as to how he might present it. And I'm not even sure where his spiritual life was yet at the time, so I just didn't want him going there and picking up on all that stuff and starting to conform to it because it felt more holy, quote unquote. So I didn't want his gospel messed up that he was trying to grapple with, and, and I certainly knew he would have a tough time if he came to Christ and saw things for what they really are. So um, interesting, you know.